Yesterday, my family and I ate a late breakfast after Cooper's baseball game at TJ's, home-style restaurant in uh, the border of Goodyear and Avondale. If you've never been to the TJ's, you know it's Goodyear's version of, of Cracker Barrel. And while we were waiting in the lobby, uh, I opened up the, the latest edition of the West Valley View, the local newspaper. And as I flipped through the paper, I was relieved to see the view tackling the most important pressing issues of our day. There it was right on page 11 of the October 11th edition of The View, an article with the headline, Is the Pickleball Takeover Ruining America? I mean, forget the fact that the Middle East is on fire. Uh, forget the, the tension that's building all over the globe. This question must be answered. Will our nation indeed be ruined by pickleball? Only time will tell. To be honest, friends, with all that's going on in our world and in our country, the headlines question uh, struck me as ridiculous, as borderline inappropriate. And in our text today, in Matthew 20, we find an even more astonishing and even more inappropriate question. It's asked by the mom of two of Jesus' disciples about the status and importance of her sons, and she asked it immediately after Jesus had predicted his suffering and death. Shockingly, Jesus doesn't ridicule this mom. He responds with one of the most compelling and beautiful statements ever spoken about humility, yes, but also about the eternal rescue of sinners like you and me. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 20? Matthew 20. Uh, if you need a Bible this morning, friends, there's a black Bible and a seat in front of you. Grab that black Bible. Turn to page 825. Page 825. We're in Matthew 20 this morning. Now, friends, if you are new with us here at Redeeming Grace Church, just jumping into Matthew for the first time, let me help you get your bearings. Uh, Jesus uh, is at the tail end of his earthly ministry. Chronologically, He's got just over a week left before his death outside Jerusalem. He and his disciples have migrated from the north of Palestine in Galilee to the southern part in Judea. And now they're about to embark for Jerusalem for the annual Passover celebration, which of course we know culminates with Jesus' death at the end of the week. We'll pick things up in verse 17, verse 17 of Matthew 20. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the, on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. 
But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, each and every week here at Redeeming Grace Church, I try to give you a main idea of the biblical text that will be the main idea of the sermon. So here is the main idea for Matthew 20, 17 to 28. Don't grasp for greatness by promoting yourself, but by reflecting the self-giving humility of your king. Don't be like the disciples and grasp for greatness by self-promotion, but by reflecting the self-giving humility of your king. And two points this morning uh, that, that, that reflect the, the structure of the text this morning. Number one, from verses 17 to 19, the king's path. The king's path. Number two, from verses 20 to 28, the king's ransom. The king's path, the king's ransom. Beloved, I pray that the Lord might use his word today to cause us to humbly follow Jesus, even as he, our great king, humbly serves us in love. Let's look at that first section, verses 17 to 19, and the king's path. In these verses, friends, Jesus predicts for the third time his impending suffering and death in Jerusalem. And the first time was in chapter 16, verse 21. He did it again, and according to Chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. Now finally, for the final time, here in chapter 20, as he and his disciples start the journey toward Jerusalem. Friends, this final prediction by Jesus of his death and resurrection is by far the most specific. Uh, in the first two predictions, Jesus forecasts his suffering, his death, his resurrection in, in broad terms. But here, he specifies the type of suffering and the type of death it will be. Jesus says in verse 19, if you look at it, that he will be mocked and then tortured, flogged, and then crucified. In other words, Jesus knows that his death will be agonizing and horrific. In this final prediction, Jesus also highlights the fact that although it is the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes who will condemn him, it's the Gentiles, the Romans as we know, who will do the actual torturing and killing. Friends, we know from all four New Testament Gospels, this is exactly what happened. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own. He was arrested and tried by the Jewish authorities who then handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, for the final sentencing and the crucifixion. Let me ask you a question. Of all the things that Matthew could share about Jesus's life and ministry, why do you think he takes the time to tell us of these three times that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection? And actually, Matthew's not alone. Uh, Mark and Luke in their Gospels also give us these same three predictions. Why do you think the Gospel writers think that Jesus' predictions are so important? Well, I think the main reason is to highlight that the cross, for us as Christians and for Jesus, the cross 
It's not an accident. It's not even a surprise to him. He wasn't caught off guard by any of it. No, Jesus knew with certainty what was to befall him. Friends, this fact helps us to understand that the cross is not incidental to Jesus's mission. It was central to both his identity and his purpose on earth. In fact, look down at verse 28, which we'll look at in more detail later. There, Jesus says that he came. He came not to be served, but to die as a a ransom for many. He He came. He came to where? To Israel? To Jerusalem? No, he's highlighting the fact that he came to earth to die. Jesus is implying that his his birth as a human baby was not the beginning of his existence. He he is God who assumed human flesh and in stunning grace and humility came to die. There's no question Jesus knew the Old Testament scriptures which prophesied about Israel's coming Messiah, that, that he would suffer tremendously and die for his people. Think of texts like Psalm 22, Uh, Isaiah 53, which we read earlier and we'll look at later in the sermon, Jesus was self-aware that since he was indeed the promised Messiah, his destiny, according to Scripture, was death for his people. But friends, there aren't any Old Testament Scriptures that clearly predict the exact means of Jesus' death, nor the fact that Gentiles would kill him. No, clearly here, Jesus is exercising supernatural knowledge as the divine Son of God. And here's the thing that I think should cause us to marvel this morning, that should just cause our hearts to explode in the worship of our King. It's not merely that Jesus knew. It's not only that he possessed detailed knowledge and specifics of his suffering, but that in knowing all of this, he still headed toward the cross anyway. Every step Jesus took toward Jerusalem was a step of love. Why else would he go? Why else would he subject himself to torture and death that he knew was coming if not compelled by grace and mercy for us? And it's not just Jesus, the divine son, the second person of the Godhead who's acting in love. When Jesus says in verse 18 that the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, friends, who is the one doing the delivering? Judas Iscariot, the band of soldiers who arrested him in Gethsemane, maybe in part. And I think the will be delivered of verse 18 is a divine passive. It's God, the Father, who does the delivering. We read earlier in the service the prophecy of Isaiah 53, which foretells of the coming messianic servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You see, packed into Jesus' predictions of his sufferings is the mystery and the beauty of the triune God. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all acting together as one to save us. Jesus the Son assumes our humanity to represent us and become our sin bearer, but it's the Father who delivers him over to death. As the Apostle John would write, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He makes the way for his own justice to be satisfied and for our sins to be forgiven. Beloved, Jesus knows the Father's plan. He understands that he is to be the sin bearer, the judgment taker, and he willingly submits. 
knowing everything awaiting him in Jerusalem, yet the king marches on. I think Matthew includes Jesus' prediction so that as his readers, both the original readers and us today, that we as the readers might just take a moment to marvel at the love of God in Christ for us. Jesus anticipated how awful his death will be, and yet he walked the path before him to fulfill redemption's plan. As we sang just a few minutes ago, oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. Friends, Jesus' prediction is designed for us to worship him more fully, but also to follow him more faithfully. Look at what Jesus says in verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, I am going up to Jerusalem. Is that what he said? No, he says, we are going up, not I. Friends, this is a moment of truth for the 12. In Jesus' first two predictions, it was, I must go. But here he embeds the disciples' fate with his own. Jesus' implicit question for them and his implicit question for us this morning is, are you willing to follow me even unto death? Now, it's one thing, disciples, to stroll the hills of Galilee with me, to be there for the miracles, to, to listen to my teaching. It's a whole other thing for you to walk with me up the road to Jerusalem, to mocking, torture, and death. Friends, even here in this seemingly offhand comment, Jesus is framing the path of discipleship for us as his followers. Following Jesus is not about taking the the path of least resistance. It's not about taking the the path of self-affirmation and self-promotion. Jesus has not called us to selfie Christianity. No, he's called us to follow him, even if it means to suffer with him and for him. We follow Christ on the road of denying self, knowing that Jesus is leading us on that road toward eternal life. Which is why what happens next is so remarkably off-putting and out of step with the path of discipleship that Jesus calls us to walk. Let's look at the next few verses in the second point, the king's ransom. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he, and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Friends, if this request from this mom seems tone deaf to you while well, you've caught Matthew's drift, this situation is cringy. It's awkward in its inappropriateness. No sooner had Jesus finished predicting his humiliation and death in Jerusalem, the mother of James and John, whom the text calls the sons of Zebedee, she approaches Jesus with her son's upward mobility on her mind. Uh, Some scholars actually think that this woman is Salome, the the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. If that's the case, then the boys are trying to use the family connection to get in good with King Jesus. Regardless, I I actually don't think uh, Mrs. Zebedee is a helicopter mom kind of hovering around her sons to make sure that they in their adult life succeed and achieve. Uh, It doesn't appear to me that she's the one who kind of dragged them up to Jesus against their will. No, the way the story reads, James and John put her up to this. 
Because in response to the mom's question, Jesus doesn't talk to her, does he? He talks directly to James and John. According to verse 24, the other disciples aren't indignant at mom, but at James and John. They're the ones, the boys, that pine after importance and status. Most likely, these guys are thinking something like, how can Jesus say no to our mom, right? And then they send her to run their errand. Friends, I think Matthew intends for our jaws to collectively hang open at this point in astonishment. How can these guys be thinking about their own position, their own position in Jesus's kingdom when Jesus's mind is on the cross? Well, remember, Jesus had also just spoken of his kingship. Last week, we looked at Jesus' promise to the 12 at the end of chapter 19, in which he promises his disciples that when, when he, the king, takes up his throne in the new world, they, the 12, will sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tw- tribes of Israel. Um, per- perhaps that promise designed to give comfort to his disciples, to comfort them with future hope, became twisted around the axle of their own selfish ambition. They're thinking maybe we can be the ones who sit on the thrones closest to Jesus. The sit on the right hand and on the left is like the modern equivalent of being uh, the vice president or the chief of staff to the president of the United States. James and John are essentially saying, when you take the power, Jesus, we'd like the, the two top places in your cabinet. Of course, the other disciples aren't much better given what verse uh, 20, excuse me, verse uh, 24 says about their reaction. It's not like they're the humble ones. They were indignant. James and John merely beat them to the punch. You see, the disciples still likely conceived of Jesus, the Messiah's reign, as political. In their mind, Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem to lead a revolution that would ultimately overthrow Rome. Since he's the Messiah, he's going to set up shop. He's going to fulfill God's promises through his powerful and glorious rule on the throne in Jerusalem. Jesus' predictions of his suffering, his death, they were just totally lost on them. Perhaps the, the language about his rising again had caused them to view the whole thing figuratively. Maybe as like, you know, he's going to go through some trials and then he's going to Yield The trials are going to yield to, to the rising of Jesus' power. Who knows? The point is, they had totally missed the boat. If Jesus was going to overthrow Rome, if he was going to liberate Israel, James and John wanted to ride his coattails to the top. The irony here, friends, is thick and it's tragic. Jesus is marching to the cross. His disciples are chasing a crown. Jesus is surrendering his life. They are jockeying for a throne. You see, the disciples rightly understood that Jesus would sit on the throne. But friends, what they totally missed is the fact that Jesus' reign would come through his death. That the path to glory is in fact the road to suffering. That the cross must precede the crown. And before we roll our eyes at James and John's thirst for glory, friends, I think we ought to examine our own hearts. How often do our hearts long for this type of of status, for importance? How much do we want to be seen? You know, I doubt you'll ever be bold enough to actually pray and ask 
the Lord to sit at his right hand and at his left in the coming kingdom. But friends, if we could kind of peel back the layers of your heart, I wonder if we would see someone desperately waving their arms to be recognized as great, to be honored. You might even pray, oh Lord, be glorified through me with my life. And you like when Jesus is honored, you truly do. So long as he leaves just a little bit of the glory, just a smidge of the honor for you. Friends, I think there's a special temptation in this regard for for church leaders and for those really who do ministry of any type, which includes most of you here today, especially when the Lord gives fruit through our ministry. There's, there's just a natural temptation in the human condition to take credit for things that we have no business taking credit for. You know, the Apostle Paul riffed on the, the nature of gospel ministry in 2 Corinthians 2. He, he said that when the, the gospel is preached, it smells like death to some. It is repulsive. They reject the message of a crucified king. It's even offensive to them. But to others, that same message has the fragrance of life, the power of the Spirit. Then he asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? The obvious answer is what? Oh, God alone is sufficient. Only God causes his word to triumph over sin and the hardness of human hearts. But you know what? You and I are prideful enough that if we're honest, we would love to answer Paul's question occasionally with, I am. I'm sufficient. I've got this. Have you seen how good things are going over here in my little part of the world? And pretty soon we begin to hog the glory that only God deserves. Like James and John, we slowly begin to view Jesus as the means to our own glory rather than our lives as a channel for his. RGC family, let's pray that the Lord would just demolish this instinct in our hearts. The path for Jesus, the path for all who would follow is always, always future glory through present humility. To walk another path is to set ourselves at odds with our King. Look, look at how Jesus responds to James and John in verse 22. He says, you do, do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we're able. Friends, the, the obvious answer to Jesus' question is what? No way. <laughs> we're not ready to do that, Jesus. Because the cup Jesus speaks of here, it really is an Old Testament image depicting the wrath and judgment of God being poured out in the suffering of those who, who drink the cup. Jesus is asking if James and John are ready to drink that cup of suffering. Again, he's referencing his impending suffering and death to become the sin bearer. But, but these dudes evidently still think that Jesus is referring to the, the goblet of glory and power. They have no clue that he's talking about drinking to the dregs, the bitterest cup imaginable. And so they, they just kind of confidently and, and ignorantly say, yeah, we got this. Yeah, whatever cup that is, you know, when you go to drink it, we're going to take up our swords. We got you, Jesus. Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. There's a great irony and perhaps intentionality in the way Matthew turns this phrase at the right hand and at the left. Because friends, when Jesus 
is in the actual moment of his greatest glory. When he was lifted up in death, there was someone at his right hand and at his left. But they were the criminals being crucified with him. Jesus is essentially saying here, you have no idea what you're asking. You're right. You will drink the same cup of suffering, but only the Father can exalt and honor you in the way that you ask. Friends, I, I am just amazed at Jesus' composure and his restraint throughout this entire exchange. He has every right to be ticked, uh, to, to whittle James and John down to size. You think you're able to drink this cup? Please, I mean, you just sent mommy over here to ask me what you couldn't. What in the world makes you think that you're able to drink this cup? Instead, Jesus merely points them to the fact that they will indeed drink the same cup and they will share his sufferings by being persecuted. Friends, according to Acts 12.2, James became the first martyr among the 12. He was beheaded by Herod for preaching the gospel. John was exiled to the island of Patmos for the sake of allegiance to King Jesus. Eventually, these men understood the supremacy of this king who was crucified and rose again, and they gladly drank that cup of suffering, knowing that future glory awaited them. By the way, when Jesus says that, that these exalted positions aren't his to grant, he doesn't mean that he lacks any of God's authority, that somehow he's kind of lesser than the Father. This really is not a statement about Jesus' deity at all. He's not saying that he lacks this right as God, but rather that it's not relevant to his earthly mission as the perfectly obedient divine son. As part of his incarnation, Jesus gladly defers and submits to the Father's will. I don't think Jesus is implying either that two of his followers will actually be the, the two top dogs in his future kingdom. I think what he's doing is, is merely using the terminology of the mom's question to talk about God the Father's prerogative to give honor. Friends, let's be real. The disciples' real problem, problem that so often plagues our hearts, isn't merely that we think too highly of our own glory. It's that we think far too little of Jesus's. Because if we really understood who he is and the glory he deserves, we would never even conceive of ourselves as being close to his level. Jesus's throne is far too exalted for men or even angels to claim or ask for a seat next to his. But look at Jesus's response in verse 25 to this rank-grabbing pride of the disciples. Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus here draws a stark contrast between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. He, he says, you know how it works in the world. Just think about the rulers of the Gentiles, how they lord over people, how their kings exercise authority. Perhaps the most poignant example of misused authority that Jesus could come up with was the Roman Empire. Israel at that time was under Roman domination. They were subjugated in their own land. Every day they felt the grinding rule of those Gentiles. And yet in their thirst for status, 
the disciples had unwittingly become just like them. It's interesting that the phrases lorded over and exercise authority here in our English translation are both compound words in the Greek, and they both begin with a preposition that means down. Down. You get the sense that Jesus is talking about the type of authority that bears down on people, the type of, of, of authority that uses people for, for selfish ends. And years ago, I came across a news article uh, that reported in, that in the, in the year prior to that article, the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un had spent $643 million of his people's tax revenue, North Korean government's money, on himself. We're talking multiple mansions, dozens of luxury vehicles, thousands of bottles of expensive whiskey. You get the idea. He spent the people's money on his own opulence. Meanwhile, at the same time, the North Korean people, people suffer in poverty. And at the time, 120,000 of them were interned in labor camps where human rights violations abound. It's an extreme example of someone who rules at the expense of his people rather than ruling for their good. But you know, the same type of pattern is repeated in all types of authority structures in the world, whether it's our own government, our workplaces, or perhaps even our families. I am sure we could all sit here this morning and tell stories about abusive, misused leadership. But, but notice, notice Jesus doesn't contrast the authority structures of the world by saying something like, well, in the kingdom of God, we're just bucking off authority altogether. Every man's going to rule for himself. No, that's not what he says. Rather, he points to the radical transformation that leadership and authority undergoes in the kingdom of God. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus is saying to his disciples, for you, the route to gaining influence, the route to greatness is not to grasp for power. It's not to maneuver along the inside rail and jockey for status and position. No, on the contrary, the path to kingdom influence and true greatness is not to bear down on people from above, but to take the place of a servant, and even lower, of a slave, and from below work to lift people up. If you think about it, you know, most of us have a gag reflex about this type of kind of rank-grabbing pride and attitude we see it in others. I mean, we just cannot stand someone who gets some sort of status or position by putting others down. We, we roll our eyes at the, the Dwight Schrutes of the world, always trying to make themselves look more important than they really are. Influence gained through power and control, it actually really doesn't influence at all. It doesn't change or compel hearts of people to follow them. But you know what? Influence gained through love does. The author Andy Crouch was right when he observed in one of his books, leadership doesn't begin with title or position. It begins the moment you're concerned more about others flourishing than your own. Beloved, that's the type of greatness that truly influences and compels, the type of leadership that's radically focused on others' good, the, the world measures greatness in terms of how many people serve you, of how many people you're the boss of, 
of how many social media followers you have. Jesus says in the kingdom of God, greatness is measured instead by how many people you serve. The world's version of authority and greatness causes others to wilt under the scorching heat of domineering power. Jesus' version of authority and influence is like the sunshine and the morning dew on a cool day. It's the type of greatness that gives, not takes, that serves, not subjugates, that lifts up, not puts down. I'm incredibly thankful that I believe this mindset by God's grace marks the brothers who are elders here alongside me, Bo Soto and Steve DeVore. Brothers, thank you for the way that you faithfully uh, seek to lift others up in love. Let's let Jesus' instruction be our playbook when it comes to the oversight of this church. This church is not ours to control by domineering or by force. It's ours to serve by sacrificial strength and love. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not come to to tweak a few things in our lives about pride and self-centeredness. He's not come he's not come in just to merely, you know, calibrate it just a, a tad. No, he has come in with a grace filled wrecking ball to demolish our pride. He subverts the values of the world that are affected by sin and arrogance, and he points to something better. It's not the first who are first and the last who are last in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom that Jesus brings, the first are last and the last are first. After all, Jesus says, consider the pattern of my life. We'll begin again in verse 26. Look at verse 26 again. Jesus says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, those words right at the beginning of verse 28, even as, help us to see that Jesus is making a comparison here, isn't he? He's listing himself as the prime model, as the ultimate example of this type of greatness through humility and serving. Obviously, you can, you can see the tie-in with the concept of serving. Jesus has, has just indicated that those who would be great in the kingdom of God may, must take the position of a servant, of a slave, and then he proceeds to say that he, Even he, the Son of Man, hasn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Friends, there is more to this verse than meets the eye. I think Matthew 20, 28 is one of the most profound verses in the entire Bible. And so in order to understand it fully, let's break it apart a bit. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man hasn't come to be served, but to serve. Why does Jesus refer to himself here in verse 18 and throughout his ministry as the Son of Man? Does he mean that he's just a human? That he's just the son of Adam, right? Yes, but that's not all. You see, Jesus isn't using this this phrase, the Son of Man, casually. He's actually giving himself a title, an official title that comes from Daniel chapter 7. We called ourselves to worship this morning with that very passage. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Friends, hundreds of years before Jesus came, Daniel prophesied of a day when a king, an exalted son of man, would take up a global eternal reign. And yet, this is not any ordinary human, according to, to Daniel. Daniel saw this son of man riding on the clouds of heaven. This human king is clearly also divine. He will rule the peoples and nations and languages because he shares status with God. For centuries, Israel had anticipated the coming of this triumphant, reigning, eternal king, the son of man. But that was not the only figure promised to them. Turn back to Isaiah 53 in your copy of the scripture. Isaiah 53, it's on page 613, or you can just get out your worship guide since we also read the this passage earlier in the service, Isaiah 53. In, in this passage, written some 700 years before Christ, Isaiah prophesies of a coming servant of the Lord who will give his life on behalf of his people. Let's start reading in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgression, or excuse me, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, do you see now what Jesus does in Matthew 20, 28? He takes these epic, massive promises that, that Old Testament Israel thought would come to pass separately. The, the Son of Man would come and the suffering servant would come. And Jesus says, oh no, oh no, you should not see two faces here. They coalesce into one. Both are fulfilled in me. These images may seem separate, may seem even contradictory. How is it with a king with global and everlasting dominion could be slaughtered as a servant? How can a king rule forever if he dies an ignominious and excruciating death? Well, we know the answer is the truth that Jesus predicted in Matthew 20, 19. He would not only die, he would rise again. As Isaiah prophesied, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Beloved, Jesus is saying, these ancient promises are fulfilled in me. I, the Son of Man, the exalted reigning King, have come. But before all nations bow to serve and worship me, Jesus says, I must stoop to serve them. I must give my life as a ransom for many, as Isaiah 53 prophesied. You know, nowadays we often don't use the word ransom a ton, except maybe in relation to kidnapping. But here it actually has the idea of deliverance, of buying the freedom of a slave or a, a prisoner. The, the ransomer 
pays the debt of the slave to set him free. By saying he's come to ransom the many, Jesus actually is is painting a very unflattering picture of us, isn't he? He implies something about us that the Bible states explicitly time and time again that each one of us owes an incalculable debt to God. Each one of us as sons and daughters of Adam are sinners. We have spurned the good and gracious rule of our Creator. We've turned away from the love of the Father. We may operate under the illusion of freedom, but without the Lord, each one of us by nature is shackled to sin that masters us. All the time, we're, we're told in this world to, to follow our heart, to express the true us, right? Who we truly are, to be fully human and to, to find true life. But instead, the Bible teaches that such a life lived apart from God puts us in a prison that we could never escape on our own. Each one of us is born in sin. The debt we owe to God is infinite. It's cosmic. We, we deserve nothing less than eternal condemnation and judgment. We need a ransom. Friends, even flawed humans like us know that you can't just overlook evil. You can't just say, forget about it, right? We, you, know, you know, Hamas, you committed these horrible atrocities in Israel. Yeah, just, just do better next time. No, we can't do that. And friends, if we can't shrug off evil, how should we expect God to? His justice must be served. The debt against him must be paid. The sovereign reality is that the payment to free us, the payment to free us from our debt must match and overcome it. What could possibly pay off the infinite debt of judgment that we owe God? Well, friends, this is where Christianity parts ways with every single other world religion. Other religions have a concept of a debt owed to the God and even the humility of the worshipers. Friends, only the Christian scripture reveals a God who condescends to the debtors and offers himself as the price. Jesus says, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. I've come to die the death that the many deserve. I've come to take their place, to become their substitute, and so purchase their freedom. C.S. Lewis pictured it this way in the, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He wrote, When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Friends, it was love that reversed the curse. The sinless one became the sin bearer so that sinners might live. This is the good news of the gospel. Friends, you could never purchase this type of a ransom yourself in a million lives of a million years. Your debt is too great. No amount of good works you do or sacraments you keep or best intentions you have can release you from this type of debt. For sin-ridden humans like us to attempt to to pay off the debt, to self-atone, it's just inherently self-defeating. Only a sinless Savior can do it. Only the Son of Man has. 
Friends, this morning, Jesus is beckoning you. If you've not come to God by faith in him, Jesus is beckoning you to come to him. You know, some of you this morning might need for the first time just to to recognize the debt you owe, to own your sin and rebellion against God, and you turn from it. You turn from your sin to trust in Christ who who has paid the debt for all who trust in him, rely on him to save. Others of you, you may have identified the debt, at least in part, but you misunderstand the payment. For you, Jesus' call is to stop your vain efforts to work off a debt that only he can pay. You simply come to him by faith and childlike trust, and you rely on what he did, what you could never do. Friends, do you see how Jesus' words in verse 28 are so profound? Yes, he's our supreme example of servanthood that we follow. It's stunning. Even the Son of Man, the eternal King, He did not come to be served, but to serve. But, but Christ's example, it's meaningless if we have no power to follow it. And so Jesus died, not just to be our example, but to become our ransom to forgive us, to transform us, to follow him by faith. One of the most influential evangelicals of the 20th century is the late Carl F.H. Henry. Henry was a a well-known Christian thinker, apologist, author. Uh, Toward the end of his life, uh, a seminary student asked Henry in a Q&A session, Dr. Henry, after all your achievements, how do you stay humble? Henry paused for a moment and then responded, how can anyone stay arrogant when they stand beside the cross? How indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would reveal to us more and more of the glories of this humble King, our servant King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you came to us not to be waited on hand and foot, even as you deserved, but to serve, to take the form of a servant, to take the form of a slave, to empty yourself, become obedient even to death, the death of the cross. Father, we praise you that that you have highly exalted our Christ. You have exalted him far above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh Lord, this morning we want to magnify the worth of our King by lives of humility and service to him. Lord, if there are those here this morning that do not know you by faith in Christ, oh Father, may they do what Jesus has called them to do, to turn from their sin and rely on him fully and only to save. We pray this all in Jesus' name.